Welcome to the New Frontiers podcast, exploring how innovations will affect the way we live, think and work in 2019 and beyond. New Frontiers is Barclays' annual digital innovation conference. We have invited some of our speakers to help create this podcast, delving into some of the key issues that we will be exploring at the event. My name is Charlotte Roberts, and I work in Barclays' innovation team, driving experimentation and partnerships with cutting-edge fintech companies. And joining us today is Jesse McWaters from the World Economic Forum. In his role as financial innovation lead for the World Economic Forum, Jesse has authored some of the most comprehensive and influential publications to date on the role of technology and innovation in the development of a new financial ecosystem. Jesse is a frequent media commentator on fintech and engages closely with C-suite financial executives, senior regulators and leading fintech innovators. So I, for one, am super excited that he is here um, to answer all of my questions. So I guess, I guess to kick off, I'm really curious to understand um, perhaps if there's one piece of insight or um, information or a data point that you've come across that has really surprised you. So I think there's been a, a lot of surprises along the way. I've been exploring what we now call fintech for about five years now. And I think we've seen attitudes within the fintechs, the incumbents, and beyond uh, rapidly change. Um, one recent data point that I've been thinking about a lot is the shifting role of data mm-hmm. and data strategy in financial services. Um, And it's something that was really exemplified to me in a recent trip that I took to Shenzhen uh, when I sat down with uh, some of the leadership from a very large insurer and financial services provider there by the name of Ping'an. And Ping'an has built some really incredible stuff. Uh, You know, to give you an example, uh, if you're applying for a loan uh, and you might be in the mid-band of the credit range, they might initiate a video call with mm. you. And they might ask you a few questions. And then, you know, as if by magic, you'll find out a couple of minutes after the call ends whether or not your loan's been approved, and then it's automatically fulfilled. But it's not the judgment of the individual agent that really counts. Instead, it's the fact that they're doing micro gesture facial recognition on you oh, to wow. really try and lie detect, you know, what is it that you're planning to use this loan for? Now, the traditional strategy of a financial institution might be to say, oh, we've built something really cool. Let's keep this to ourselves and have it be a competitive advantage. Mm. But Ping'an's thinking about this uh, a little bit of a different way. They've actually made this and some of their other most interesting uh, new product features and, and, and services available to hundreds of second and third tier financial institutions in China who are desperately trying to figure out a way to compete with Ant Financial and WeChat. Yeah. Why have they done that? Well, one thing is that they've, uh, they've done a really neat trick, which is they've turned a, a cost center into a profit center. But so much more important than that is that they have dramatically increased the depth and the breadth of the data that they have access to. Mm. And in doing so, they're able to train their underwriting models, their facial recognition systems, all kinds of other things um, in a way that allows them to entrench uh, an advantage in that space as a service provider. Wow. That's that's super interesting. And that's I think that the great thing about that is that it's a, an incredible customer experience, but that's also driving kind of better forward management for those banks as well. It's like that's that's the win-win that everybody's after, isn't it? 
It is. It is. You're you're helping people get access to better services. You're getting improved accuracy, improved customer service. But it's also a neat play for Pingon because unlike delivering a financial product, something that's heavily regulated and difficult to move out beyond borders, Pingon's looking at how they might be able to take this solution and expand it out across Southeast Asia because it's really a lot more like taking a cloud business and, and expanding it. In fact, it is built in their proprietary cloud rather than trying to be you know the winning lender in seven or eight different Asian markets Mm. I guess it has a lot of um, similarities to the kind of some of the discussions around various people hypothesizing that um, the big incumbent banks are going to become commoditized Mm -hmm. and that they're going to partner with fintechs so that fintechs can get the scale but they'll perhaps still own the customer and the bank will retain that expertise around being the technical and resilient scalable processor of everything that needs to happen in the background. It's very no, I think I think that's absolutely true. I think we're moving towards a structure of financial services that is more modular and more networked. And to succeed in, you know, being a winning player around delivering one of those modules is in a sense all about having uh, a smart data strategy. Mm. And so once you sort of see and understand these models, you start to see them other places. Uh, BlackRock and their Aladdin system is very much doing similar things in the uh, in the risk management and capital markets space. Uh, there's a UK company called uh, Oak North mm-hmm. that's built out something called Acorn Machine, which is effectively uh, an underwriting as a service provider. Again, allowing them to get access to data and really scale their expertise in this offering. Um, and so I think we're going to see more and more of these sorts of services uh, modularized and really made available uh, to competitors because it provides a long-term data advantage. Yeah. Um, We could talk about that all day, but I have another question that I would like to ask you. Um, So do you believe um, that incumbent banks can or indeed should become uh, more, in inverted commas, uh, fintech? And what would that entail? Do we need both? Um, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. So I I think it's interesting. I think we've been talking for years about this narrative of banks versus fintechs. And the financial media in particular has really liked to cast this as a story of David versus Goliath or to talk about how, you know, somewhere in the garages of the Bay Area, somebody's building a a JP Morgan or a Barclays killer. Uh, And it's really this sort of narrative that, you know, some small scrappy fintech company is going to come and utterly destroy disrupt the banks and that we're going to be replaced by something that looks like a more you know digital version of a bank uh I don't think that that's a particularly accurate description of the way that the world is moving. Uh, I mean, banks certainly have a serious set of challenges. How do you turn a super tanker uh, quickly when the core technology systems are 40 and 50 years old, when the programmers who know how to make updates to those systems are increasingly uh, well past the age of retirement? It's a really non-trivial challenge to be flexible and agile and to give the customer experience that people are looking for. But fintechs have challenges too. Uh, How do you scale 
in a way that has reasonable costs of customer acquisition. Um, it's you know really difficult if you've built out a niche product that hits a group of people who are you know paying really high fees but getting a, a low value experience. I mean then then you can you can build a business niche there. But if you're talking about becoming the new de facto provider of financial services, that's different. So where I tend to think that things are going is not bank versus fintech, but a broader shift in ecosystem. That um, the future of banking, a lot like the future of cars, is self-driving. Because what are customers looking for? Customers are looking for a financial experience that provides unique value to them and that is simplified. People talk a lot about how uh, people don't need banks, uh, they need banking. Well, I would say that people don't just dislike their bank, they dislike the whole notion of banking. And so I think solutions that look to automate aspects of people's day-to-day financial paperwork, that look to provide unique and customized value, uh, both directly financial in terms of optimizing and customizing products, but also much more than that, uh, creating sort of interconnections to the way they live their daily lives and advice. For me, that's the future of customer experience. Uh, And that is something that fundamentally can't be provided by a single institution. Instead, maybe it's one customer platform that is the real point of engagement, the point of advisory, what I would call the self-driving agent. But you're going to have many different product producers flowing into that. Much like uh, with Amazon, you have many different manufacturers and sellers of underlying products. In this future, I think you might have many different underlying balance sheets and risk models creating the types of products that customers need. Yeah, I'm very much with you on that. And, and certainly from from our perspective as an innovation team and what I can see across um, yeah, everything that's going on within our organization as, as Barclays, there's a real focus on trying to think about the bank and our customers and, and how actually it's more about what's the, what's the end goal life need of that customer and, and where does the financial service fit within that and, and what's the right way to provide that service at the time when the customer needs it so that it's more about enabling whatever it is that they need to do rather than them having to do banking, um, which is not really what anybody wants to be spending their time doing, I think. And I think the challenge for institutions in this space, be they fintech or banks, is that if we're in this more networked and more sort of ecosystem world, you're going to have to make choices about what roles you're going to play and what roles you're not going to play. Are you going to create the self-driving agent uh, and have the data flows required for that and be all about the customer? Are you going to be about creating uh, excellent and specialized products? Are you going to be about particular sort of niche constituencies of clients? There are a lot of different ways that you can play it, but ultimately they all require you not to be a, a jack or a jill of all trades, but instead to pick some areas of focus and probably to divest some areas that you're uh, that you're going to just let other people be focused and specialized in. Mm. It's interesting. And, and I think certainly what I feel is that you could probably, from both a bank's perspective, but almost any corporate organization out there is sort of challenge yourself to unbundle your business because you could probably find a company out there that does every single element of what you do as a business 
and together the sum of all those parts could probably be a bank um but and that's who we're competing with on mass um mm-hmm. but as you said it's, it's what's your strategy do you want to be the self-driving car or do you want to focus on on parts of that and that brings me very nicely onto my next question um it's kind of linked to the self-driving car idea is around open banking so we're sort of nine months into open banking now um and i'm curious whether you think open banking is already a roaring success um or whether it can become a roaring success um or is it disaster in the making? <laughs> <But let's>, uh, <laughs> what do you think? So I, I think that it's uh, a really exciting thing because it enables uh, a more rapid shift to this kind of self-driving notion because fundamentally no one institution is ever going to have all of the data that they need to really create that customized experience for either a retail individual or or even an SME or a corporate. You're going to need to be pulling data from many different places and so I think there's there's a real opportunity there. But I think that um, you know, if blockchain uh, and the sort of the narrative of infrastructure disruption mm-hmm. that accompanied a lot of the discussions of blockchain over the last five years has taught us anything, it's that infrastructure replacement in financial services and indeed anywhere is not simple, uh, and it takes time. Uh, and so I think to see the world reordered will be uh, will be really interesting uh, but it's gonna it's gonna take time and we're not going to see exactly how it goes and I think that there's some there's some risks definitely in terms of uh, you know we're talking about moving around personal and sensitive data uh, and so ultimately we're going to need to make sure that the right protections are in place to make sure that uh, the advice that's being delivered on the back of that data is sound, mm-hmm. that the underlying data is secure, uh, and that uh, you know people are receiving the best possible experience as opposed to one that they maybe don't understand or are frustrated by when they really actually start to see how it works under the cover. Yeah. And you mentioned blockchain very, very briefly in there. So so let's talk about that. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say the initial buzz around blockchain has subsided, but I feel like there might be kind of a new a new wave as we're sort of starting to see more and more opportunities and real sort of use cases and test implementations. So I, I'm, I'd love to know what you think about how far the financial service industry has come in terms of our sort of learning and the applications and and where do you think we're going to see some of the first implementations um, at scale? Sure. So I think that there are there, there are two points on this that I'll cover. And I, I think it's first, it's interesting to hear you say that it feels like the, the discourse has subsided. And I think that to a degree that's particularly true uh, within traditional banking structures. Because I think there was a narrative that blockchain was going to allow us to rapidly replace and to escape some of the challenges of legacy shared infrastructure, right? Whether it was uh, clearing and settlement of capital markets, or international payments, the blockchain was just going to fix all of that. Um, and I think that the learning of the last few years has been that blockchain or not, replacing those systems is enormously complicated, uh, even when you have everyone on board and aligned. Uh, but the challenge is, is that not everyone is on board and aligned. Uh, and the thing that I always say is that blockchain is a great tool for keeping a group of people on the same page. But the p- technology doesn't do anything to get them on the same page in the first place. And so if you want to radically reshape global payments, 
you're going to need to have a lot of financial institutions agree on what the new system looks like, um, whether it's a blockchain, a centralized solution, or something in between. I think the really interesting thing that's happening in this space over the last even six to eight months, I think we've really seen it uh, heat up, is the change in the way that some very traditional bankers talk about the crypto asset space. Because once upon a time, we were very used to hearing incumbent financial services institutions say, we're interested in blockchain, not Bitcoin. And the interesting thing is, is that increasingly we see legacy financial institutions interested now in how they can help their customers negotiate crypto assets like Bitcoin without dealing with the complexities of the blockchain. Because if you're, say, a family office that wants uh, access to, exposure to crypto assets, you can't exactly just call your broker today and ask them to, to buy you some of that Bitcoin or, you know, to make a speculative investment in crypto kitties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you have to do a whole bunch of complicated stuff. And so I think that's why we've seen the CBOE uh, roll out Bitcoin futures that settle in U.S. dollars rather than in Bitcoin, so you don't mm -hmm. have to worry about custodianship. Uh, we've seen the CEO of NASDAQ mooting the idea of, uh, you know, an exchange is an exchange. Why not uh, trade crypto? And most recently, we've seen Fidelity roll out some really interesting stuff around uh, institutional custodianship of crypto assets. Um, and so I think whether or not these crypto assets are, are the future, mm. uh, I mean, that remains to be seen. But so long as there are clients who want to make investments in them, financial institutions will be interested in how to facilitate and aid the needs of those clients. It's very interesting, isn't it? And, and good as well to see that uh, demand from the consumer is actually driving banks to, to innovate and create new new sort of products and services around that that I guess fit within our risk appetite. What do you think it's going to take to get that level of collaboration that is required to achieve some of the more behind the scenes blockchain implementations? I think it takes a number of things. Mm -hmm. um, we've been actually looking at this a fair bit uh, in the research that I've been doing. And there's this sense in which to really get the community to come together, there seems to be a relatively small number of instances in which that happens. Uh, you have instances where the existing system is simply starting to break down. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, the, the New York markets were actually sort of ceasing to function because the, the weight, the, the sheer physical weight of needing to move around all the paperwork that needed to move around in lower Manhattan was meaning that uh, markets were needing to be closed sometimes for days at a time. Uh, and so there was a desperate need to digitize the system in order for it to continue to function. Similarly, post-2008, we saw things like swap exchange facilities get created relatively quickly uh, under a regulatory purview. Uh, outside of that, you really need to have, I think, either some mix of a serious problem or a regulatory impetus to really get some of this stuff going. Mm. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of it. There's a lot of interesting work being done, but I think it, it requires to some degree one of those two things to really turbocharge it. Yeah. Okay. So nothing new there then. Until there's a burning platform, uh, we might be waiting a little while. I might be a bit of a pessimist. Uh, I think there's, there's, there, there's the opportunities 
are huge, but given that the current system works well enough in a lot of cases, it's difficult to convince people to make the kinds of investments required uh, in, in doing a switch. I think it's the same thing that we see around the legacy systems to a great degree, right? Um, banks understand that in order to be highly agile, they need to transition away from their current legacy cores, but it's an extremely expensive and risky proposition. Uh, and it is a difficult to specify set of opportunities uh, that it enables. Really what it enables is optionality on quickly building new products and being more agile. And that's difficult to quantify in the traditional budgeting cycle. It's interesting because it's, it's difficult to quantify, but it's also probably one of the universally accepted truths around sustaining the future of, uh, of the banks that we have today. And I think one of the nice things that we've seen over the last few years is this sort of shift to the no- away from the notion that the only way to get past your legacy core is to do a rip and replace mm-hmm. and the adoption of the idea that you can move piece by piece into the cloud. And I think that's also one of the reasons that we're seeing an increased openness to these sort of more modular and interconnected operating models. Yeah, it reminds me of something that um, I can't remember who it has said to me, but ultimately I think something that fintechs are really good at, um, especially I know if you look like at um, Ant Financial and Alibaba and well, they, those sort of companies, is that effectively they're kind of partnership machines if you like um and that i think that's where the optionality comes in for for incumbent banks and financial institutions is that we're not um agile enough yet to be able to have that optionality and kind of plug and play partners in the way that i think we would definitely like i think it's really interesting to see the way that things function differently in a greenfield environment where you can build something from scratch um and uh don't want to talk about competitor institutions, but I think it's interesting the opportunities that an organization like Goldman Sachs has, not previously having had a retail presence. They've built this uh, retail digital bank called Marcus, uh, and they've recently bought uh, a personal financial advisor, sort of maybe looks like a proto self-driving agent called Clarity Money, and they're now working on integrating those pieces and really able to kind of take those pieces from fintechs and otherwise and start to build a a new type of bank. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I've been watching Goldman Sachs and Marcus very carefully and they seem to be doing very well. But there are also on the flip side, I think, some examples where um, banks have acquired uh, neobanks or challenges that really haven't haven't panned out. So it's a a very interesting space. Um, And I guess on that note, Jesse, if you weren't doing what you're doing now and you could start afresh... Um, where would you invest your time, your energy, and your money? So we've talked a lot in this discussion about how retail individuals, small businesses can hope to get a financial experience that's fundamentally better, more customized uh, than the one that they have now, uh, that gives them access to a level of advice that they previously uh, haven't been able to access or have only been able to access at, uh, at relatively high cost. But as I alluded to earlier, all of that is predicated on data. The trouble is that today, most individuals and institutions don't have good quality tools at their disposal to manage that data, to understand who's using their data, 
for what purposes, and to be able to share data in a way that is privacy maximizing as opposed to a way that's sort of fragmented and privacy minimizing. Um, and I think that's fundamentally because the internet was built, uh, as it's famously said, without an identity layer. You know, on the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog, as the old New Yorker comic says. Um, we need better tools for managing our identity, and uh, new technologies like zero-knowledge proofs and homeomorphic encryption are really rapidly pushing out the boundaries of the type of identity system that we can build. And so I think if I was doing something else, it would be about seeing what I can do to help foster a new and better way of managing our identity that puts customers in the driver's seat that uh, allows them to get all of these benefits uh, without the, the data insecurity that we see every day in terms of hacks, uh, but also without data being used in ways that the customer doesn't necessarily understand. Uh, it's certainly not a simple undertaking. Uh, it's not just about giving people control ab over their data. It's about giving them the right tools to understand implications as well. But I think it's an incredibly important and an incredibly exciting undertaking. So sadly, we're out of time for today. But Jesse, thank you so much. And I really look forward to seeing you at New Frontiers. Um, for everyone listening, if you enjoyed this podcast and you're keen to hear more about fintech, you can actually tune in to Rise Radio, a fantastic fintech podcast from Barclays Innovation. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you at New Frontiers. Barclays Bank PLC is not liable for the impact of any decisions made based on the information contained or the views expressed. Barclays Bank PLC is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. More details, including how you can contact us, are in the description of this podcast.